lets my memory rest But never forgets what I lost Wake me up when September ends Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. It's Sunday the 2nd of October 2022 and joining me as always is my co-host Churn. How's everything going Churn? And by the way, for Friday, happy International Podcast Day. Happy International Podcast Day to you too. Um, It's been going pretty good over here, thanks. Um, It's Formula One weekend here in Singapore, so uh, it's been a quite a... Quite a few traffic jams in the middle of town, but I'm sure it's going to be quite a spectacle tonight. Yeah, well, um, I'm familiar with that in London because we got the London Marathon today, so we're having similar problems. Well, indeed, but at least our trains are on strike so uh, this weekend, <laughs> so that's been a little bit of a relief. But uh, anyway, for listeners' queries, we did wish each other a happy International Podcast Day to uh, yesterday. But as of this episode, we would officially have done 92 episodes and two special bonus episodes as well. So Sam, what has been your favourite episode over the last two years? I mean, it has to be the one we did in person. It has to be that one. But if I can't choose that one, then I think I really enjoyed last September because we did a series of podcasts of a variety of elections we covered um Norway, we covered Canada, we covered Germany, and I particularly enjoyed that month of podcasts because it felt like we were diving into big elections week after week. And I mean, we've been doing something similar in the past month as well, but I particularly enjoyed last September. Yes, that that's a good series of elections. And uh, like you, I was going to choose the in-person episode as my favourite of the 92 and a bit we have done. But for, I think for me, the one that I certainly found very interesting was... Um, uh, the one we did very early on about Moldova, because that was a country I'm sure you agree, Sam, you and I had zero knowledge about. And we managed to do what I thought was quite a comprehensive episode of Moldovan politics and something that uh, listeners might not know. So one of, one of Sam's great joy, mine and I certainly yours, Sam's great joy is to tell people we know about the mm-hmm. politics of their own country and certainly surprise them. And Moldova was certainly one of those, wasn't it? Oh, it absolutely was. Yeah, I've... I I still, to this day, don't get tired of the look on people's faces when I tell them I seem to know more about their political system than they do. So I do, I do still enjoy that. Well, to more podcasts to come. But before we get started on this week's podcast episode, Sam, I thought, would you like to you know, hear another fun fact about this one? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, for listeners who might have not recognised the introduction, the introduction song was Green Day's Wake Me Up When September Ends. Now, not only did I choose this because A, it is the end of September and it's the first podcast episode we're doing at the start of October. Two, Green Day is performing tonight at the Singapore Grand Prix. But also three as well, uh, we slightly changed our format for long-time listeners of the podcast to do musical interludes at the start of podcast. And this is the first song we started that has repeated itself one year later. So there you go. Isn't that great? It absolutely is. What a great way to begin. (laughs) So this week's episode is going to focus on last weekend's Italian general election, 
which has likely seen the election of their first female prime minister, Giorgio Meloni, and also a new right-wing government to succeed Mario Draghi's technocratic coalition. Chern, before we start diving into these results, why don't you run us through the headline? Yes, yeah, so let's just begin with the results in both the Chamber of Deputies, just the lower house, and before I tell you the seat change, I think you have to be aware of the context, which is that at this election, thanks to a 2020 referendum, the number of seats in both chambers have been reduced. So in the Chamber of Deputies, it's moved from 630 seats to 400. So the centre-right coalition scored a majority of 237 seats, which was down 28. But as a proportion, they've grown. And it's led by the Brothers of Italy being the party led by Giorgio Maloney with a whopping 119 seats up 87. The centre-left coalition will have 85 seats, down 37, and the Democratic Party is by far the biggest party within this coalition, with 69 seats, they're down 43. The Five Star Movement, on paper, got the worst result out of all of them, with only 52 seats, down 175. But we'll be talking about whether that's actually better than some of the polls that predicted. So Action Italian Viva, which is the remnants of Matteo Renzi's political party, got 21 seats in their centrist political party, and a total of 26 seats went to other smaller political parties. In the Senate, again, the number of seats fell from 315 seats to 200. The centre-right coalition got 115 seats, minus down 22. So we're in a situation where the centre-right coalition has a majority in both chambers, which should please and should get uh, legislation relatively easily. But crucially, they do not get a super majority in both chambers uh, in order to pass constitutional change. So therefore, um, there is some checks and balances on their power. The centre-left coalition got 44 seats, down 16. And the Democratic Party was the biggest party with 40 seats in the Senate for the centre-left coalition. The Five Star Movement had 28 seats, down 84, and Action Tel Aviv had nine seats and a total of four seats to regionalist parties. So, Sam, with, with those headline results, what are, first of all, your reactions when you saw those results coming in? I mean, my initial reaction was not particularly surprising um, because the writing has been on the wall for quite some time that this is the most likely outcome of the election, certainly since the collapse of the Draghi government when this election was first called. But to be honest, for quite some time before that as well, it's it's been seen as almost inevitable that a combination of the Brothers of Italy, Forza Italia and um, the League will end up forming the next government. So I guess the, the initial reaction was not one of particular surprise in the overall composition of the results and and where that would lead to in terms of government. So I guess my particular my my surprise came in that if you look at the overall vote share, which as you keenly pointed out at the beginning of your review of Italy, is more interesting to look at than seat count because of the drop in the overall number of seats in both chambers. The relative change between the two blocks, the centre-right block and the centre-left block, is fairly minimal, to be honest. So I thought that is an interesting thing to look at because the overall vote share of the centre-right has not really changed much, even though they've now gone to a significantly more favourable seat position. 
And the overall vote share of the Democratic Party certainly is, is basically a negligible change since 2018. So it's interesting that such minimal changes in the overall vote share has led to such a sizable change in the seat counts and eventual government formation. So I guess to sum that up, I'm not particularly surprised at the government we have, but I am surprised about how the results we have have led to the government we have. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. And I think one way to show it is that within the centre-right coalition, the tectonics of which is the largest party within it has totally and fundamentally been redrawn. I mean, in the last election, it was very much Liga being the biggest party in the centre-right coalition. But now it is the Brothers of Italy, for example. And that seismic shift from a party, you don't forget Brothers of Italy only got 2 and 4% in the last two elections. And today, in the proportional representation system, they are 26%. That is a phenomenal growth and really, I think, shows you once again or reinforces the instability of Italian party systems, isn't it, Sam? No, I mean, exactly. And I guess maybe that's a, a good a good place to start, to be honest, um, in terms of the changing party system, because the overall vote shifts within the centre-right, I think, are probably the most stark. So do you have any potential explanations for why there was such a churning of support in the right? Because, as I said, the overall, the total of number of voters choosing to vote for the three right-wing parties, the League, Forza Italia and Brothers of Italy, has not hugely shifted since 2018. But within it, it has. So how do you potentially explain such a dramatic shift? I mean, we alluded to it in the preview podcast, but I'm interested to see if you have any further takes now. I think there are three factors that I, I will, will, will mention the Brothers of Italy's success. Firstly, and I think this is the most crucial, is that they remain in opposition to Mario Draghi's technical government. And that meant is that they could present themselves as a viable alternative, particularly among Italians frustrated with the status quo. So I think that that was why they were able, particularly, I suspect, to take a lot of support from their allies, the Liga, which is when Maltenio Salvini in 2018, really honed in on this issue of immigration. Now, we should note that immigrate, whilst I think there's a correlation between people frustrated with immigration and voting for the Brothers of Italy, as a political issue, this was very much smaller. I think it's wider frustrations with the cost of living that has really explained the Brothers of Italy's rise. And that is the second thing that I've done. Not only have they remained in opposition, so they can criticise the government, they successfully convinced part of the Italian electorate that they had the capacity to get the economy on track and address family concerns and cost of living concerns. I mean, there was a poll that came out that 93% of Brothers of Italy voters listed strengthening of financial support for families in difficulties as reasonings to do so. So they clearly have secured the votes of a lot of people who were frustrated with the lack of government help that the, that the president that all the other parties gave when Mario Draghi was the prime minister. And uh, I think the third thing is kind of what I alluded to earlier, which is the broader success of populism in Italy over the last couple of years. You know, populism has expressed themselves in various various uh, guises in Italy. In the last election, was Liga and Five Star Movement. This time around, it's the Brothers of Italy, reflecting the continued weakness of the Italian political traditional parties, the potential, the fact that the last government was actually a technical government rather than one led by political parties. 
and just a general instability of politics in general. And I think all these factors combined have provided a fertile ground for the Brothers of Italy and Giorgio Maloney's party to surge. I think the big question now is whether that can be sustained because we know, Sam, that part of the appeal of a populist party is appealing to the anti-establishment, those felt left behind. And we've often seen in many other countries that once these parties go into government, look at Norway, Sweden, for example, as Norway, Finland, for example, and even Liga themselves, is that once they get into government, they quickly lose support. The question is, can Giorgio Maloney turn that around? And that's a million dollar question. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of those three things. And I think one of the reasons why the centre-right really was so efficient in this election is because their alliance was watertight in terms of distributing particularly the single member districts across Italy and they distributed them on the basis of opinion polling performance to try and um, accumulate as many seats as they possibly can and to illustrate how efficient this was there were 147 single member districts in the Chamber of Deputies the centre-right alliance won 121 of them so pretty much all of them, um, which just shows how efficient their vote was. And I think comes to explain why the vote from brothers of, from the League and Forza Italia drained so efficiently into the Brothers of Italy because, because of opinion polls, Brothers of Italy were given so many more single-member district candidacies, which meant that there wasn't a League or Forza Italia option in, I think they got given 97 of the 147 constituencies, if I'm correct, um, but I'd have to double check that. But um, that sort of explains why the League and Forza Italia vote filtered so efficiently into the Brothers of Italy, even though the overall share for the right-wing alliance barely changed. Well, actually, there's a very great point, and I think we can, we should mention the electoral system. In a sense, it was even worse because. Uh, the centre-right coalition got 44% of the vote. So actually, not too dissimilar across both chambers, I will say, but managed to get 56 out of the 67 first-past-the-post seats. And that is represented 83%. So they got 44% of the vote, but 84% of the first-past-the-post seats. Now, that's just extraordinary. And the key, Sam, is the fact that this is not mixed member proportional. So the proportional system is not correcting for the imbalances that you saw, or to the large extent, correcting for the imbalances we saw in first past the post. They are mixed member majoritarian. So they're decoupled from the mixed member proportional. The proportional element is in terms of votes for the centre-right coalition takes no into account how it performs in the single member districts. So even in the Senate, the Brothers of Italy got 34 seats out of 122 which reflects the fact that it got 26% of the vote in the, in the Senate. So it shows you there that the electoral system in this case, ironically passed under the centre-left, has really come to benefit the centre-right because fundamentally they did so well in the first pass of the polls and the proportional element system topped it up really, didn't really correct it to the extent that we usually see in Germany, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I remember back in the midpoint of the Matteo Renzi premiership back in 2015-2016, debates over the electoral system were dominating um, his time in government. And one of the key arguments was they wanted to 
um, give winning parties the extra boost they needed to be able to form more stable governments in Italy? Well, arguably, in this election, that has been 100% achieved because we now have a situation where a centre-right alliance has a majority in both chambers and is likely to be able to form the most stable government numerically that Italy has seen for quite some time. So in that way, I think Matteo Renzi has achieved his goal. I just don't think he's necessarily achieved it in the way he anticipated back in 2015-2016. Just one more point on the electoral system, Sam. Um, we've often talked about, you know, the, the centre-right have done very well, but do you wonder, do you agree with me that equally the centre-left has to blame for failing to coordinate amongst themselves as efficiently as the centre-right in allocating mm -hmm. one candidate? Mm -hmm. I mean, I gave, I give you an example, which is the constituency of Roma Centurio, which is the centre of Rome. Now, we often associate, particularly now nowadays, with cities being the hub of social liberalism and in an election, certainly, where I think we're going to discuss the tectonic plates of which demographics voted for which, a constituency very much a safe seat for the centre-left and the centrist parties. Well, what we saw there was Emman Bognolio, who's a former minister for foreign affairs in the latter government, um, lose her seat because the right got 37%. She got 33%. She represented more Europe. Another centrist party aligned with uh, Carlo Canandra got 13%. He's the action, so part of Action Italia Viva, mm -hmm. Matteo Renzi, part of Renew Europe, got 13%. And Five Star Movement got 11%. So clearly the right was able to gain from those figures, Sam, from a split in the centrist vote, which would mm -hmm. probably, if either Emma Bordonio or Carlo Canandra had stood aside, would not be in this situation, wouldn't it? No, absolutely. And I mean, the, the failure of the left to unite in this election, I think, has a huge part to play in the overall results, because not only was it widely covered in this electoral campaign, the breakdown of the negotiations between the Democratic Party and Action Italia Viva, Matteo Renzi's group, but also there was widespread criticism that the Democratic Party didn't even attempt to engage with the Five Star Movement. And I think a lot of observers would have told you that had they managed to do that effectively, vote share wise, they were actually better positioned than the centre-right alliance. And especially given the fact that Five Star Movement made a, made a clear decision in this election to go in it more on a centre-left basis than they had traditionally done before, because they were, they were talking much more about um, poverty, social inequality, economic redistribution, cost of living crisis, which probably would have married quite well with the COVID recovery fund based campaign of the Democratic Party. And there wasn't even an attempt to engage, mainly because the Democratic Party blamed um, the five star movement for the collapse of the Mario Draghi technocratic era. But what you then ended up with was the five star movement actually outperforming most expectations in gaining a sizable percentage of the vote that just meant that you then had a natural cap on the ability of the centre-left alliance to win seats because it was competing with another centre-left argument. So I think that entirely is to blame for what went on here. I mean, however, if you do look at the vote share across the country, the Five Star Movement and Democratic Party were more competitive in areas where the centre-right wasn't competitive. But at the same time, you picked out a perfect example of a seat where it really should have been a centre-left seat for the taking across 
whatever party choose to choose to stand there as the primary candidate. But what you ended up having was all of them standing, splitting the votes and allowing a right wing candidate straight through the middle. And in an area which you don't normally associate with electing right wing candidates as well. So I think that's really a indication of the electoral system breaking down fundamentally. Uh, the first past the post magnifying some of the disproportionality within it. Um, Sam, let's take a look at them. We talked about the electoral system. We talked about the broad factors, but let's talk a bit more about the voter demographics. What have you found in terms of which group voted for which coalition, specifically the Brothers of Italy? Where did they attract the their base of support? Um, I think it's it's a, an interesting thing to look at because. In this election, because of the inefficiencies we just talked about with the left alliance, if you look at demographic maps of this election, really the centre-right vote, particularly the Brothers of Italy, came from all over the place in Italy because of a lot of it is um, skewed by the first-past-the-post vote shares. So that's, that's an asterisk to put on this. But geographically, I think it's quite clear that the right was successful in rural areas of Italy because the pockets of democratic and five-star movement support were limited to um, Rome, Milan, Naples, Bologna, these kind of areas in Italy, which are much more urban centres, whereas the centre-right vote came in more rural areas. Um, I think religion plays a huge role in this electoral cycle, particularly for the Brothers of Italy, because I found a map of Italy which broke down Brothers of Italy vote share and compared it with a map of Italy which breaks down the percentage of people who attend a weekly Catholic Mass and the areas where most people attended Catholic Mass, i.e. up in the 70s, 80s percent, were exactly the areas where the Brothers of Italy did better and I think if you mapped those two maps on top of each other you'd basically see the same sort of patterns emerging which I think makes a lot of sense because the Brothers of Italy campaign was heavily based on pro-family arguments um, about um, role, gender roles, about sexuality, um, about immigration, protecting the family in Italy, which makes a lot of sense why that is re very resonant with quite a heavily Catholic population. So I did find that an interesting demographic. And finally, because the vote shares didn't significantly shift from 2018 to 2022 in terms of the vote for the right, I think it can be safe to assume that a lot of the demographic indicators from 2018 remained the same, even though we don't have the same extent of data yet. But in 2018, the vote for the right was older, it was blue collar, it was less educated, and it was more religious. And I don't think that that coalition is any broader this time or any are not significantly different the difference is it was very united and its vote was very efficient i think on the last point i agree with you it's just that potentially which is the leading party that attracted in the center right that vote was the difference i mean i have analysis about ipsos which showed that the center left alliance did well amongst entrepreneurs freelance executive freelancers, executive office workers and teachers. And I think just pinpointing uh, office workers and teachers, we can see that um, the Democratic Party got 21% of the vote there and Brothers of Italy did win with 25%. But don't forget that 
teachers is majority dominated by women as professions and office workers, entrepreneurs, much more educated, much more highly income workers. So I think there's some correlation between there. The center-right alliance and the five-star movers did better amongst traders, artisans, self-employed and workers. And amazingly, workers, I mean, you know, the, the Democratic Party came out of, you know, car manufacturers. You know, if you think of the Ferraris and the factories, yet they only scored 11% of the workers' vote in this election, significantly below their nationwide vote share. The Liga got 13%, considering the dismal performance elsewhere. I think that really shows you. And the Brothers of Italy got 35% of the workers' vote. I think that really shows you this new order in terms of centre-right parties doing better amongst more blue-collar workers, centre-left parties doing better in cities and more highly educated voters. I mean, just that simple analysis, Sam, doesn't that show that cleavage of what the new centre-left and the new centre-right can track? It's all over there, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think it, that leads quite nicely on to how the other parties, particularly the centre-left, are able to break into this political environment where it at least seems for the short term that the centre-right have a very firm grip on Italian politics because if they can maintain that sizable um, coalition of, of voters, which geographically is very diverse, not just in terms of um, it being workers, religious, it spreads all across Italy and in a system where first-past-the-post districts are um, national and have no difference on the number of seats you get proportionally, you can quite quickly rack up seats if you have a national coalition. So what can the Democratic Party in particular and the Five Star Movement do to try and make their vote more efficient? Well, unless I, I, I would like to leave the comments on the Five Star Movement to you, but I think for the Democratic Party, like I think one of the most striking things about this election is that the Democratic Party's vote share didn't move at all. You know, I mean, it's 19.1% now, it's 18.8% now. It suggests to me that it's a party kind of with its core vote and nothing else much besides, to be honest. And I think that's a, two things. And it's largely, I think the Democratic Party itself, and Enrico Letters resigned as leader. And I think that's step one, really, because I think in this election, there just was a complete absence of any vision of what society the party seeks to create. We all knew what George Maloney seeks to create. And the Five Star Movement had a good campaign, but the Democratic Party just went around, you know, complaining about the centre-right and the warning about fascism. But I don't think that's fundamentally enough, really, because, um, so that's the first thing. It was more kind of, exp- um, I so that's the first thing, it needs a vision, really. And I think more importantly is it needs to decide what kind of ideology that it seeks to represent. Is it a more centrist kind of platform? Or is it more of a sen- more of a left-wing platform? And I think that fundamental tension between both, where you can see on the, if it moves towards the centre, is that Matteo Renzi's Italia Viva has really occupied that. But on the left, will it be willing to risk that and be paint- portrayed by the right as communist and stuff like that? Or being associated with communism? I do not know. So I think it's fundamentally a lack of vision Probably a leader, which probably be a bit more inspiring and a bit more charismatic would help as well. That fundamentally explains the Democratic Party's malaise. Yes, they can replace the leader, but I think trying to solve what the vision 
and what ideology that it can organize and read to coherent its ideas and principles, I think both of these things needs to 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 do. Now mm-hmm. they can get some level of support back because they're going to be in opposition. And we know that Italians, particularly those that get frustrated with the current government, will somewhat support the opposition parties. But would they support the established centre-left? I do not know. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I think your last point is is a good one because really, it'll be the first time since 2013 that the Democratic Party have been in opposition and have remained in opposition because they led the government 2013 to 2018 and were part of the government for three quarters of the last term, um, both initially with Conti and then again um, with Mario Draghi as well. So it will be the first time that the Democratic Party have really got to have really been able to um, relax and rediscover itself in opposition. And sometimes that can work wonders for political parties because they no longer are worried about defending lines that come from other political parties. They're simply worried about how can we get the Democratic Party message out into the country and how can that then propel us to a strong result in the next general election. So I think that could be a favourable environment for the Democratic Party to, to have those discussions that you were alluding to about ideological presentation, about leadership, about alliances, to be honest, because they might want to reopen the possibility of working with the Five Star Movement, who clearly have a base in the country that, yes, they collapsed significantly from 2018 and also really from 2013, but they still were able to win a sizable number of, of seats. And if the Democratic Party can step back and think maybe they will be now that they're in a more left-wing setting, a favourable ally. These are all these kind of discussions that can happen in opposition that can't really happen to a large degree in government. So they are going to have the space to do that for the first time really in, in 10 years. Yeah, and, and I think as well, just look at the where the parties did well. The five-star movement did well amongst... the typic, What we say is the most likely five-star movement voted was a women aged 18 to 34, with less than high school diploma, low socioeconomic status, that is probably a student. That sounds to me quite similar demographics you often expect for a centre-left political mm-hmm. party. So I think but there especially, is some... Especially particularly efficient, the Five Star Movement was in and around the suburbs and urban centres of Naples, which is famously not just one of the poorest areas in Italy, but one of the poorest cities in Europe. So clearly... The Five Star Movement's argument and their voter base extends well into um, some of the most disadvantaged areas where the Democratic Party, at least in this cycle, have struggled to make inroads because famously their vote seems to have been the strongest in the most affluent areas of of um, Italy, particularly around urban centres of Rome, Milan, as I said, um, Bologna, Turin and Genoa as well. Well, do you know the the five star better performance? Do you know what is one of the casualties in the results of his better than expected performance in Naples? It was the one of the one of the casualties was somebody called Luigi Di Meo, the former leader of the five star movement who lost his seat in Naples. And of that course. point on where on what on what was the best performance of the Democratic Party, really based on Ipsos analysis, were women who was age over sixty five, so therefore pensioner, 
degree holder and a high socioeconomic status. So that's what it, Italy's uh, Democratic Party has become. And I think given what the typical best performance of some of the other parties are, they really need to find a coherent message to appeal to people on lower socioeconomic status and potentially younger demographics as well. So I think that is something in which the Democratic Party, when I talked earlier about lacking a vision or coherence, yes, they need to do that, but you just need to expand your 10. And I think trying to design policies that can appeal to that rather than just running around claiming that, you know, the brothers of Italy are fascists and stuff like that, I think it will be step one, surely not. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and just quickly on the five star movement, um, obviously, you've alluded to the fact that their vote share actually in this election was slightly higher than polls. And we were suggesting certainly in our in our preview podcast. But still, they are going to be outside of government and it is their worst performance since they started really being competitive in elections back in 2013. Um, do you have any thoughts on the Five Star Movement's future? Do you think, are they here to stay or is this the beginning of the end for the Five Star Movement? Um, before I answer that question, I just want you, your thoughts, Sam. What do you think was the, how would you rate Five Star Movement's performance in this election? I think it's disappointing, given the fact that they were competitive for government in the last two cycles, but also quite like I found it personally surprising. And I think a lot of people in the party would be relatively pleased with that performance because they're not part of an alliance. They stand on their own. And yet they were still able to get 15 percent of the vote and win 52 seats in a in a chamber of 400, which I think it's a reasonably respectable showing for an individual party. So I guess a bit of both because it was better than expected, but still significantly worse than the last time around. Yeah, I think I kind of agree with you, actually, because I think if you look at Italy, if you just draw a line through the middle of Italy and look at a proportional vote of those south of the line, it is five-star movement territory. Now, the problem is that if you compare turnout, the South doesn't vote in the same proportion as the North. So you're just not going to get the same proportional number of seats as you do in compared to the centre-right, which did very well in the high turnout areas in the North. But I can see a base for the five-star movement and retaining a base, which I think is crucial. And if you look at the first-past-the-post seats, I mean, in the Chamber of Deputies, they have 10 seats. The centre-left coalition has 12 seats. Despite get the centre-left coalition at 26% of the vote and the five-star movement at 15%. So they finished, you know, with two less seats, but on nearly half the vote that the centre-right had, the centre-left had. And in the Senate, what we saw was that the, the centre-left coalition had 26%, the five-star movement had 15%, but they both had five seats each. So they actually have quite an efficient vote source. The, the, the issue for them is that, yes, it's disappointing, but what can they do beyond that? Because they have a base now. Will they be stuck like the Democratic Party and remain the base? Or what would they do next mm. to broaden it? Is what the question is, I do not know at this point. Mm. And I think that is a question that the Five Star Movement really needs to understand. Because, But can they just get it by just being in opposition? Because as a populist party, they can now bang up against the centre-right coalition. I do not know. Is that enough? I do not know. What do you think, Sam? Well, interestingly, between 2013 and 2018, the Five Star Movement built its success and its reputation on being 
a vocal anti-establishment centrist party who refused to cooperate with anyone and wanted to just call out corruption, failed policies, etc., etc. Now they've left government, which is not hugely surprising because sometimes anti-establishment parties, once they become the establishment, end up imploding because their entire USP is disintegrated. But the interesting thing, I think, for the Five Star Movement is that they've gone into this election on a very different ideological front, yet still being anti-establishment. And I wonder if that ability to just reform their image just in advance of leading government could become quite a favourable thing going into the next parliament, because they're still going to have 52 seats, which is quite sizable. They're now a populist left-wing party in many respects, calling out social inequality, poverty, cost of living. And if you have an establishment, anti-establishment party parroting those lines of attack against a right-wing government who has made very clear that they're not particularly interested in doing anything about social inequality or redistribution, could be quite an interesting um, dynamic. And the, the Democratic Party need to be careful not to get lost in an argument that could emerge between the Five Star Movement and the government, rather than the Democratic Party and the government. And you're really beginning to see them capturing some of this disaffected vote in this election. I mean, if we look under unemployed, yes, the right got 44%, but the Five Star Movement beat the centre-left coalition. They got 24% of the vote to 22%. And among students, the, 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 the Five Star Movement got 25% of the student vote, which I think is very interesting indeed. And again, this is natural competing territory with the centre-left. Now, mm. in the proportional I mean, in, system, In some ways, fine. it reminds me a bit of Germany because you have there the establishment left having a much older support base, whereas the alternative left, which in this respect is the Greens, which is very different to the Five Star Movement, but the alternative left is much younger and is bringing in different coalitions, which is maybe better future-proofed than the establishment left. So what it seems, Sam, to me, this discussion is that in the short term, at the very least, the Democratic Party and the Five Star Movement will have to tread very carefully in opposition in terms of how they want to position their parties for future growth. And both parties will need to grow in the future in order to get back into government. But I think the final word before we look at the lessons we can learn should be on the new incoming government, particularly one led by Italy's first female prime minister. And I don't think many people would have thought that Giorgio Maloney just a few years ago will be taking that title or that Italy was anywhere near getting its first female prime minister. Um, she's been quite a study in contrast if you look at some of her past rhetoric to what she has since been talking about, certainly um, in her post-election speech, for example. So, Sam, try and unpick what a Giorgio Maloney premiership will look like. Yeah, I think it, it'll be quite interesting because... Even over the course of this campaign, Georgia Maloney has changed um, rhetoric on certain issues in anticipation of leading a government. So, for example, in the foreign policy sphere, um, her allies and her previously had been much more pro-Putin than she has demonstrated within the campaign and particularly in the last few weeks of the campaign. We won't necessarily anticipate a dramatic shift in Italy policy towards the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example. But we probably are going to see a very different relationship with the European Union. 
um, the Brothers of Italy are not explicitly um, in favour of leaving the European Union. That debate doesn't really exist to a sizable proportion um, in Italy, but they certainly are much more, much more Italy first in their approach to the EU. So I think you'll, you're probably going to see more vetoes from Italy in terms of EU policy, particularly when it favours um, redistribution or intervention in foreign economies. Um, I don't think Italy's particularly going to be very favourable in that realm. And you'll probably see, unlike what was happening with Mario Draghi, who very much played a hands-on role on the EU sphere, with Italy one, being one of the sizable players, um, cooperative players, you're probably now going to see Italy more sit alongside um, the Polish Law and Justice Party, potentially even Viktor Orban's Hungary, in terms of the level of involvement in the EU, which, for one of the EU's oldest partners, I think will be a very sizable shift in, in tone, because Italy has been there since the very beginning of the European Union, and now we're going to see an era of Italy's engagement with the EU, I think, being quite minimal and that can be that could be something tricky for the EU to contend with on a domestic policy i think we're going to see a shift maybe not in policy on social issues but certainly in emphasis because personally georgia meloni is anti-abortion anti-gay marriage she said she wouldn't change the law with regards to either of those things but she does support conscientious objection of people administrating abortions, administrating um, civil partnerships, gay marriages, etc. So I think it's, I don't think we're going to see significant policy change in these realms, but certainly emphasis change. And I think a, a cultural change, certainly on the part of the government. And where it goes from there, I think we'll have to wait and see about the cabinet, because that, I think, will indicate a lot about where they're going to go. I know Matteo Salvini is wanting to reprise his role at the Interior Ministry, but a lot of suggestions are that that won't be a job that's offered to him in the light of the League's performance in this election. But I guess time will tell. Anything that stands out for you? Um, I think it will be very interesting indeed, because I think on the issues of um, EU engagement, one thing that has changed is the EU Council, I suspect, because don't forget, those are comprised of the various national governments. So I think seeing the EU Council really move towards the right, I think the dynamic of that is very interesting. You're right, I suspect there will be much more tension and Emmanuel Macron must feel much more lonely in his attempts to try and reform the European Union because, you know, he probably had a winning partner in Mario Draghi, but now he's probably going to get someone who's probably not going to agree with anything that Emmanuel Macron does on the EU European Union level. And we'll talk about what lessons potentially we can learn by the EU later on. I think it would be very much an attempt very on is we could see Georgia Maloney now, given the fact she's prime minister, kind of trying to, you know, talk about unity, trying to expand the base, you know, being prime minister for Italians. But I just wonder that if a party, if she's unable to deliver the gains to her own voters who expect more support, if she's unable to reverse some of the economic standards of living decline that many of that attracted many of her supporters to vote for her, is whether she'll revert to the Georgian Maloney that we expect or the base of Brother Vitaly, you know, pro-family, very much more right-wing, 
Where, but for now, I think in the short term, we can expect one trying to expand the base or trying to be a prime minister for all Italians. I just wonder whether that can hold in the medium to long term. Certainly, if we look past over the next two years, um, I think that will be certainly very interesting indeed. And I wonder from an EU perspective, how they will view this election, Sam. Any wider implications do you see of this election for Italy and the EU? Um. Really, I think the the implications and lessons to be learned will be learnt later because I think we have to wait and see how Georgia Maloney governs. Because if she governs like she campaigned, then I think there will be big lessons to be learnt in ter- in terms of um, how the EU can engage with countries because the EU has played quite an active role in Italian politics over the last few years, certainly. Um, in terms of the aftermath of COVID, and all that has resulted in, it would seem, is a government that's going to engage with the EU less in return. Um, so I think there will be lessons for the EU in terms of how the EU wants to exert its influence on national politics, because it would seem that certainly in Italy's case, it's not been very positively received. Um, and we don't necessarily have any significant European elections on the horizon where we might be seeing a change in EU relations significantly um, any further. I think Democrat, I think Denmark is probably the next one down the line where there's a sizable Eurosceptic um, elements to the election, but it could there could be some lessons for how the EU chooses to engage with its member states in the aftermath of significant financial concerns. Um, but then again, if Georgia Maloney chooses to govern very differently and chooses to maybe pursue a similar sort of line that Mario Draghi was pursuing on the application of COVID recovery funds and meeting the um, expectations of the European Union in response to that, then maybe you will see a more distant relationship between the EU and Italy, but not necessarily a um, an antagonistic relationship. So I think I, I do want to say that in terms of the lessons we can draw, I do think we need to wait to see how this government is actually run, because when it's not particularly clear at the moment how this government will will work and will function. I agree with you, and I, I think that is a a really clear thing. And I'm supposed to I mean Italians from the EU perspective, well, given the turmoil in Italian politics, whether she'll be prime minister at the end of this term, I think is still a question that cannot be resolved at this point, as we have certainly learned in the two years since we have been doing this podcast and recovered turnover and Italian prime ministers and government. I think for me, two lessons I would take from these elections. Firstly, at the start of the Ukrainian war, we wondered how populists, particularly those that are associated or tied themselves very closely to Vladimir Putin, would hold. I think we can firmly say that the far right was down but not out, and they are back on the resurgence. I think that it is one in which people clearly, the implications of what of the of the, the Russia-Ukraine war, the general cost of living issues, needs has certainly resulted in the rise of the far right that was potentially missing in some of the elections we covered over the last, certainly the earlier of when the COVID pandemic hit and certainly when the Russia-Ukraine crisis flared. And the ability of the far right to shed some of its close allegiances with Vladimir Putin and transform themselves into pro-Ukrainian or anti-Vladimir Putin parties, I think is the lesson for the left in terms of how they should 
reject messages that have been unpopular, but long been associated with the center and the left wing. And secondly, I think it's, we sort of hinted about this, is how the EU has been able to market themselves. Because let's be frank, the EU has given a lot of financial support to Italy over the COVID pandemic. It was one of the countries at the very start, was one of the worst hit. It received a lot of EU funds and its reward is a government that is going to be more hostile towards it, which I find fascinating. And I think how it translates that financial support to should theoretically be better support or more support for the European project should prompt an introspection within the EU about how it can best do that. Because this applies not only to the EU, but to many long-term recipients of EU funds like Poland, Hungary, for example, just threatening to resolve withdrawal funds actually seems to provoke the opposite reaction amongst many of this electorate. And finally, the one thing we haven't talked about is turnout. Because turnout in this election in both chambers of deputies and senate, even though it's about 63%, was 10 percentage points lower. And it seems to me that, yes, Georgia Maloney won big, but she won big because an even greater proportion of people did not bother to vote. And that is symptom to me as a rising discontent with everyone in Italian politics. Whether she can turn it around, we shall see. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of the turnout question, I think, came from the fact that Italians have gone to the polls in recent years and the eventual government has either been technocratic or a broad coalition, which they didn't necessarily feel that they voted for. But this time around, we're probably going to see a centre-right alliance, which is exactly what they did vote for. So I guess the proof is in the pudding in terms of is this government going to behave like the Italian voters believed they voted for? And, and in terms of that, I guess we will have to wait and see how the next term pans out. But that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next weekend when we will be reviewing elections from this weekend's bumper list of an elections and you can follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at at ballot underscore talk and please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us my name is sam and for all bulgarians brazilians latvians and quebecers i hope you are exercising your democratic duty this weekend and all goes well but until next time we'll speak to you soon 